Welcome to Gateway Church Wirral Online. We're so delighted that you're with us this morning. So great that you can be a part of our live streamed gathering. Just to welcome you to this space and what we're all about. Um, to say that we as a church, we're all about seeing people meet with God, encounter him for all his goodness and his grace and for lives to be changed by him. As a church, we want to see a world transformed, made better and better through every life transformed by the grace of God. So our hope and our prayer for you today, meet with Jesus in the things that we're saying, in the things that we're singing, in the way that we're opening up the word of God, which is alive for us today. We want you to know Jesus, know that he loves you, know that he has a plan for your life. And as we're going through our gathering this morning, do please connect with us here in this live stream space. You can fill in our connection card. The tab, I think, is at the top of your screen. Request prayer if you'd like to. There are great, friendly people who would love to pray with you. And do just connect with us in any and every way that you'd love to. As a church, we gather. That's what we're about today. When we come to the close of our gathering, I'll tell you how you can connect with us going forward into the week. So have a really great time. Be blessed. Enjoy yourself and enjoy Jesus, we pray. We're going to come together as a church for the next little moment to respond to God. So you're welcome to, to stay standing. As we do so, um, there is a family time available to you if you're here with your families and with your young children. So if you've got children who are aged 11 and under, we'd invite you to, to make the most of that if you'd like to. Um, if you go via the basement at the rear of the church there and via the basement into the side hall, then you can have uh, family time together there. And as the families make the most of that time, I, I wanted to share this morning um, so that we can come in response to God. It's, it's difficult at the moment, isn't it? And we don't get to sing. We don't get to sing these words. We don't get to uh, to, to perhaps shout or interact in the way that we would ordinarily want to do so. And it's very, very easy for things to become a, a passive experience. It's very, very easy for it almost to become a bit like a show, something that's external for us. Um, and, but this morning, God is here, and he's here to meet with us. And so when we talk or, or hear these words about God leading us, or when these words come and we hear these words, I am yours and you are mine. These things are not just propositions. They're not just words or truths. These things can and should be our lived reality. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we had uh, Pentecost Sunday. It was a great day. And as part of Pentecost Sunday, we, we shared in a, an international feast, cuisines from around the world. And it was really rather lovely. Um, and we enjoyed that and enjoyed our time together. We don't do that every week. More's the pity. If there was some food afterwards, I'm sure we'd all be pretty happy, wouldn't we? But Somebody once said, and it's always stuck with me, that when they attend church week in and week out, it doesn't always feel like a feast. It doesn't always feel like it's a standout moment, this kind of glorious experience every single time that they're present. And during these COVID days, maybe it can feel like that for us. You know, whether we feel isolated at home or whether we're here and things aren't quite as we would have them be, yet we're here. And what they said was, though it might not always seem like a feast, the same is true of our, our meals naturally. You might not remember every single time you've had dinner. 
Does, every, does anybody here think that every dinner they've ever made has been, you know, top draw, Michelin star kind of stuff? It just isn't, is it? Uh, or some of you are looking at me like, absolutely, it is, Greg. But you know, it's just not. But, but have you needed that meal? Has every meal that you've had been necessary and done you some good? Setting aside that kebab you got from Yummies on a Friday night. We'll just leave that one to one side. But we, we eat because it's necessary, because we, we, we need to have what is necessary for our lives. And so here we are today. We're present, whether at home or here. Our, our good friends at Oasis Church in Wallasey, we're all present because we need to have our God. We need to be with our God. And so this morning, we're going to spend a moment or two reflecting upon that and saying, God, though it might not feel like a standout moment, that's not what's important. What's important is I need you. God, I am yours and you are mine. That same Pentecost Sunday, I shared with you, there's a prayer that's local to here. And it's Hobson's prayer. And, and there was a, a vicar in Liverpool. And he used to say to everybody he was teaching and, and leading, he used to say, when you hear the one o'clock gun in the docks, he said, when you hear that one o'clock gun, pray this. He said, pray, Father, for the sake of your son, send the Holy Spirit. It's a good prayer, isn't it? A simple prayer. Father, for the sake of your son, send the Holy Spirit. And, and one of you lovely people, you heard me saying that. And you said... Uh, the following week that this person brought this to me and they said I've got you your own one o'clock gun I don't know whether you can see it can you see it it's a key ring of a, of a cannon it's a key ring it's pretty it's pretty small isn't it um, kind of not very impressive although I was quite touched to receive it does anybody feel like your one o'clock gun is a bit like that sometimes you, you feel like you feel like it's pretty miserable or, or measly or small or maybe you feel like, as I said before, the meal that you're having in the moment, spiritually speaking, just seems so ordinary. Yet these are the things that God honors. He honors us when we bring our smallness, our ordinariness, and we say, God, I haven't got anything special. I'm not that great. But you are. And that's what we're here to do right now. So I'm going to invite you in your own way to, to fix your eyes spiritually speaking upon God and if you need to just close your eyes naturally then that might help you if you want to bow your head stand, sit, kneel however you want to be but this morning we're here to say to God I might not feel so spectacular and God this moment might not feel so spectacular but God you are sovereign you remain the same you're worthy of my praise you are the hope of my days. Lord God, you are in control of all things. And in your own way this morning, would you say to God, I am yours and you are mine. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. God, whether we're at home, whether we're here, for our friends in Wallasey, Lord Jesus, each and every one of us, we are praying this truth. We need you. We need you when we feel like we're on top of the highest mountain in life and everything is soaring and glorious. We need you when we feel like we're in the lowest, deepest valley in life and everything seems so desperate. And we need you for every ordinary day in between. 
Lord Jesus, we come before you doing the ordinary things of our life, but we're wanting to do them for your glory. And we're wanting, God, for you to come, not just into this moment, but into all the moments of our lives. The moments when we're getting the kids ready for school, when we're traveling to work, the moments when we're, we're just doing the simple things of, of the tasks of the day. We're wanting, God, for you to be present in our family life, in the, in the times that we have with our friends. When we go for that coffee or that pint, Lord God, we want you to be present there, that Jesus Christ, you might infuse the ordinariness of our lives with the extraordinariness of your presence. Lord Jesus, we are simple people living this simple gospel for your glory our good and the sake of the world. Move among us, we pray. Can I invite you maybe to, to come to, to your feet again, unless you're, you're really doing some business with God where you are, but, but come to your feet again, and, and we're going to be led again in a song of praise. But as we're, as we're led in this song, could you make that prayer your own? Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, send the Holy Spirit. And you can pray it just like that if you want. Or you can pray it however you want. God, come. God, come. God, be glorified here in us. This time, God, come. We're going to spend a little bit of time together in the Word of God this morning. I do want to encourage you. Sometimes in the life of the church or in the Christian calendar or however it might be, um, we fall into the trap of thinking that once kind of an event or a moment has happened, then we just kind of go back to normal. Um, we want to understand that we never go back, as it were, in our Christian life. Certainly not back to normal. If we are going back, we want to be going back to better. And why do I say that? Well, because... Um, here we are, just a moment or two past what we celebrate as Pentecost. If you don't know, Pentecost is that moment. It was a, it was a Jewish festival, and lots of people were gathered in Jerusalem. But the, the, the followers of Jesus were gathered in one particular place with one accord, one mind, one purpose. They were there in obedience to Jesus, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And in that context, because Jesus had promised it, the Holy Spirit came powerfully upon them, and they were transformed, and they were changed. And I don't know about you, but if, if I'm ever absolutely changed, I don't go back to what I was. Is that true? We were traveling home from holiday uh, yesterday. We had a little half-term break with the kids. We had a Premier Inn. We're hey for Premier Inns. We had a pre Premier Inn booked since last October. And we did that thing that maybe some others have done. I don't know. But our October booking, obviously, we couldn't take that. So it became a February booking, and we couldn't take that. So it became an Easter holidays booking, we couldn't take that. And then lastly, it became a, a May half-term booking, and by the grace of God, and didn't we just need it, um, it was all right, and we could go. Um, um, and obviously, we have all the restrictions we have, but goodness, it felt good. And we were traveling back from our holiday, and we discovered that um, to have a, a peaceable journey in the car, um, that the adults need to just, you know, lay down any kind of semblance of, of having anything that they want. Uh, and that means wall-to-wall -wall stories. And so we had stories, kids' stories on the radio uh, and Spotify and whatever, all the way home. That's why I'm 
slightly insane today, um, just in case you were wondering. Uh, but one of these stories, it was a retelling of the, of the, of the movie A Bug's Life. Do you remember that old Disney movie? And, and there's this character in it, and, and he's this kind of caterpillar, I guess. I can't really remember him in my mind's eye, uh, but he's kind of like this funny kind of comedy caterpillar. And at the end of it, um, he comes out of his, his chrysalis as the beautiful butterfly. And the comedy moment apparently is he looks pretty much exactly the same, but with a couple of little wings on top. And he's got these kind of comedy little butterfly wings on top of his kind of dumpy little frame and so on and so forth. Look, sometimes I think we fall into the trap of thinking that's what our Christian life looks like. And we talk about transformation. We talk about encountering God, but we think truth is we've just got a pair of kind of, you know, little kind of fairy wings that we've just tucked onto our shoulders and we carry on as normal. That's not the fullness of what God has for you. And if you're on board with this, maybe you can turn to somebody and say to somebody this morning, God's got something better for you today. There's somebody you've come with in your bubble today. God's got something better for you today. And if that's what you believe, and better still, if that's what you actually want, then you've got to be willing to say, God, if you're going to do a work of transformation in my life, then I'm good with that. I'm okay with that. Better yet, I want that, God. And whatever that means, whatever it means that I have to set aside or lay down or however you're going to change me, God, I want that because I want to be the person that you are making me to be. That was a great place to say amen. Amen. But clearly these masks are baffling your uh, agreement. Come on, we'll get there. This morning... We're beginning um, a time that we're going to spend over the next few weeks in a book in the Bible, in the Old Testament of the Bible, that you, you may not have read, or if you have read it, you might not read it very often, and if you read it very often, you probably don't think of it that often, but it's the book of the Bible called Nehemiah. Probably, uh, when uh, these writings were first written, uh, there's a book right next door to it called Ezra, and they were probably actually one book. It's a book of history. It's a book of restoration. It's a book of rebuilding, and not just rebuilding the physical, but rebuilding the spiritual, the emotional, the mental, the societal. It's a rebuilding of the, the physical incarnation of the kingdom of God, but a rebuilding, actually, of, of, the, of the very spiritual and eternal kingdom of God and how it was that these things started to come again after it seemed that there was no hope. I come as no surprise to you that we're, we're focusing our attention on such a book in the Bible when we've been through, still perhaps to some extent going through, a time when hope has seemed in scarce supply. Isn't that right? And when things in many instances and parts of our lives have seemed, have seemed somewhat broken down or, or disarrayed or, or turned upside down, it's very important for us in moments like this, of course we've got the easing of lockdown and dates in the diary, don't we? And we're all kind of longing and hoping for things, but not just to say, I-, I want the natural circumstances to be changed, but to say also, God, what is it that you are teaching me? What are you teaching us? How are you seeking to shape us in this moment? And how is it that you want us to live going forward? A couple of things to share with you before we dive into the Bible. I, I was reading in um, an article from Time magazine about a concept I've come across before. And um, the, the, the kind of background goes a bit like this. Apparently, one evening in December, after a long day working from home, 
Is there anything other than a long day when you're working from home? They are all long days, aren't they? But long day working from home. Jennifer Druin, 30, headed out to buy groceries in central Amsterdam. Once inside, she noticed new price tags, new price labels. The label by the courgette said that they cost a little bit more than normal. Um, there'd be six cents extra per kilo for the carbon footprint, five cents extra for the toll the farming takes on the land, and four cents extra to fairly pay the workers who have produced it. And she said, these are all extra costs to our daily life that normally no one pays for or even be aware of. It's called the True Price Initiative, and it's been operating in the store since late 2020. It's apparently one of dozens of schemes that folks in Amsterdam in the Netherlands have introduced in recent months as they reassess the impact of existing economic systems. Now, by some accounts, the systems of capitalism actually have their origins just a few streets away from that grocery store. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? In 1602, a merchant began selling shares in what was to become the Dutch East India Company. And in doing so, he paved the way for the creation of the first stock exchange and the, the global capitalist economy that's transformed life on earth. And this lady, um, she said, now I think we're one of the first cities in a while to start questioning the system. Is it actually making us healthy and happy? What do we want? Is it really just economic growth, or could there be something more? Now, in Amsterdam and some other cities around the world, they're introducing um, something that they're calling like donut economics, which sounds brilliant already, because anything with donuts has to be fantastic, doesn't it? Um, but apparently it works a bit like this, that, that we know that if, if some folks have way too much, then it's not sustainable or affordable by the, by the planet and by society. Uh, but, and yet on the other end of the spectrum, some folks don't have nearly enough. And so the donut, it's one of those donuts with a hole in the middle. And the idea is that they want everybody to have sufficient so that nobody lacks. But at the same time, they say that there is actually a healthy ceiling to what people should have so that they don't have too much, thereby stripping resources from others. And so it's quite interesting, isn't it? And you're saying, Pastor Greg, I did not come here for an economics lecture this morning. Good news, because that is the extent of my knowledge of economics. People are looking to consider how they might build back better. How they might look at things differently, ask the questions, not just say, oh, isn't it terrible? But to say, okay, well, what might we do? How might things be different? A bit closer to home. During the Second World War, and some of you may uh, remember some of this or, or the outcomes of it, there was a man named Beveridge and he was tasked by the government, uh, the liberal government at the time. Um, well, the liberal government implemented the things rather. But in December 1942, he began his, uh, what became known then as the Beveridge Report. And they identified five major problems in British society um, prior to the war, through the war, and, and, and what they felt needed to be changed as they came out of a time of trouble. And the five problems, they went by quite old-fashioned words, but you get the idea. The first was want, that was poverty, ignorance caused by a lack of education, squalor, poor housing, idleness caused by a lack of jobs or the inability to gain employment and keep it, disease 
caused by inadequate health care provision. They identified these five major giants, as it were, in, in their society at the time. And, and they came up with a, a report on social insurance and allied services, which they published in December 42, even before things had actually got better. 1942, who was thinking about making the world a better place? And yet they were. I think that's quite inspiring, isn't it? Um, even in the midst of trouble. And they said, look, we're going to recommend a system that's going to be comprehensive. It's going to cover all of these problems from birth to death, everything that relates to these lacks. Um, it's going to be universal, available to everything, everybody. It's going to be contributory. It's going to be paid into our folks' wages. It's not going to be means tested. It's going to be available to anybody, even if they're unable to pay. And it's going to be compulsory so that everybody has to contribute if they are able to do so. It became the foundation of the welfare state. And like, again, I'm not making political points now. I'm not that interested, truth be told. What I am interested in is people of, of heart, of graft, of vision, recognizing that things aren't as they should be, aren't as they could be, and saying, actually, what do we know? And, and, and what do we think? And, and what, what do we hear? What, what is our sense of where we might go and how we might be? Into that context, I want to read the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah. It's not too long, don't worry. I know when it sounds like I'm going to read a chapter, you're all settling in. You're like, where's my cocoa? Um, don't worry, it's not that long. It's just a few short verses. But it really is going to set us up for thinking about in the context of dark days, broken down places, people, things, how might we be people who can, who can actually speak a better word and build back better? So Nehemiah 1, it begins like this. I think it's going to come up on the screen, but you can follow it if you've got a Bible with you. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, the whole book isn't probably his direct words, but much of it does come from uh, what's commonly known as the Nehemiah memoir. There's an Ezra memoir as well. So we can actually understand that many of these words are literally from the lips, as it were, or the pen of the person who experienced these things such a long time ago. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, this is part of the Persian Empire there. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, why is it in Persia? Well, look, what had happened was the people of Judah, which is the nation that God had got his hand upon, at least part of the people of Israel, um, they had actually sinned against God. They'd gone against his ways, even though he told them, if you do this, it's all going to fall apart. You will be conquered Everything you know and love will be destroyed and you will be taken away into exile. Even though God had been that clear about this on numerous occasions, yet still they had wanted to go their own way. Now we don't look at that and pontificate and think, aren't they so silly? What we do is we look at our hearts and say, isn't the human heart so ridiculous? And if you have a heart or spirit, if you are a person, then you have the potential to go away from God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. 
The old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And no matter who you are or where you've come from, whether you're good, bad, or ugly, no, I can't say that, can I? Uh, you know the Western movie, I'm not just insulting you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Nobody loves Westerns here. Anybody like Westerns? Oh, good. I've got a few people in the church this morning. Um, look, no matter how you might judge yourself, we are all prone to go against God. And actually, we've all done it. And some of us, we're here by God's grace that he's, he's called us back. We've received his forgiveness, and we're living in the light of that the best as we can. Not arrogantly, but with humility. Some of us, we're hearing God's call and we're thinking about it. Some of us, we're not yet there. Maybe this is the first time I've ever, you've ever heard from anybody that God has a standard and you haven't met it. But it's the truth of the matter. And you look around the world and you look in your own heart and truth is you know it. We fall short. The brokenness of our circumstances actually begins here, not out there. This is where they found themselves. There was a remnant left, a handful who didn't get exiled. There were some who started to return, but things were in a sorry state. Verse 4 of chapter 1, Nehemiah, as soon as I heard these words, I ranted and raved, got on social media and started to tell everybody how bad the world was. I went down the pub and spent the next two hours putting the world to rights. Is that in your Bible? <laughs> it's not in mine either. What did he do? I sat down. Well, that sounds like a bit of a passive step, doesn't it? Hang on, it's not finished. I sat down and wept. Well, that sounds a little bit soft. Maybe it does to you. Hang on, it's not finished. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. When something's broken, look, you know, we're not here talking about just some random piece of equipment lying around your house or something, or if, a, or if you know, your charging cable for your phone gets broken. We're not talking about something just small or flippant here. We're talking about the, the substantial nature of how God wants his people to live in this world. And it was broke. And it still is broken today. There's something to be mourned over, grieved over. And still Nehemiah's not finished because he says, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It was his practice, but he dove deeper into it. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Does anybody think God sounds good? great and awesome, keeps his covenant, keeps his promises, one of steadfast love with those who love him. I think God sounds good. Here's his prayer. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There is nothing so broken that God can't fix it. There's no one who's so far away that God can't draw them near. God knows where you are. That might come as a bit of a surprise to you. Maybe there's a little bit of a fearful moment in that. But he comes because he loves you. God wants to bring people back. Nehemiah continues, They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. That's, the, that's the, 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 this man. It will come clear what's going to happen, what he's going to do, what he's going to say, how he's going to go about it in the weeks to come. There you go. There's your cliffhanger. You have to come back next week if you want to know how it all unfolds. Um, what are we going to understand today? There can be no doubt that our world and our society and our area, and maybe you too, have undergone profound shock through this COVID year. It's rocked a world that thought it was perhaps just recovering from the financial crisis. And we've seen the many other discontents and, and the ruptures that found their focus in movements for racial justice, for justice for women, environmental justice, to name a few. In many ways, it can seem that we have lived through and are living in darkest times. Many around us are identifying the need to build back better. That's not, as we've already identified, it's not unique to the church. There's a beverage spirit about much public discourse here and around the world. I've no doubt that the economic and the societal, the political work will form part of the answer for the here and now at least. But the Christian must believe that there is more to be built than simply the here and now. Our vision has to be bigger, deeper, further. For the Christian, we believe that the building of a better world requires the building of nothing short than the kingdom of God. And that the building of this world right now means the investment of a better church. So that God's righteous rule and reign is for the many and not for the few. And such that the people of this world can inherit the world to come through the gospel of Jesus. What is to be built? What should we lay our hands to? How should we do it? As we read, Nehemiah hears from a brother about the dire state of things in his time, broken down walls, enemies on every side, despair. Now here's the interesting thing about Nehemiah. I think this might well find resonance with some of us here today, maybe many of us. Things for Nehemiah were actually pretty good. He lived in the fanciest palace the world had ever known. And he had a really good job. He had a position of responsibility before the king. The cupbearer, the guy who made sure that no one was going to do away with the king. Admittedly, there's a pretty kind of bad kind of uh, moment if he gets it wrong. But otherwise, his circumstances were great. 
He's well remunerated. He's got a wonderful place to live. He's got status in the court. Everything's pretty good for Nehemiah. Though the state of Jerusalem was terrible and the remaining people there were in trouble. Though the world wasn't as it should be, the purpose of God's people had seemed to come to a crashing halt. Though the distinctiveness of their calling was on this extended hiatus, Nehemiah was fine. Secure. Many of us may be doing okay. Many Christians, many believers may be doing fine. You may have a good family or personal circumstances. Your job might be fine. You may be earning really rather well. Prospects and promise of the here and now might seem just fine for you, but the challenge is there. Jerusalem still has no walls, as it were. The calling of God upon his people is as yet still not fulfilled. The question for us is, will you hear the sorrow of your brother and respond? Nehemiah heard Hanani's words. And though everything was fine and dandy for him, he wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. Chapter 2, he's going to get going. He's going to do something. How about you? How about me? You know, as this book begins, the children of Israel have been in captivity in Babylon for almost 70 years. Uh, you know, Persia then overthrew Babylon. And some of the, uh, the Persians allowed some of the Hebrews, the, the Jews, to return to Jerusalem. And many returned, but Nehemiah had stayed, as we've seen. Eventually, he'd risen to this position of prominence. Actually, God is going to use that and never fall into the trap of judging somebody else. But the events of this book, they begin in around the year 445 BC. And it's only then that this brother comes to Nehemiah. You ever had a moment like that? A moment of recognition, a moment of realization that though everything seems just fine for you, actually things aren't okay. That though you might be going about your life and everything seems to be just pursuing in the direction that you want it, or whether it's in your family or relationships or your qualifications or your job or your health or your finance or, you know, whatever it is, that though everything seems to be going down that track that you've got planned, actually when you look up for a moment, you realize this world is not as it should be. When you look up and look around you for a moment, you realize that though you are secure in the love of Jesus, so many others aren't. They don't have that hope. They don't have that surety for today or for eternity. Nehemiah had that moment. People of Israel, they had come through some tough times, but they found themselves in another one because the, the underlying issues hadn't been resolved. All of this had happened from over 90 years ago. Haggai and Zechariah had encouraged the people to rebuild the temple, but that was 70 years ago, and still they were vulnerable. Still things weren't where they should be. The truth of the matter is the fault lines of their broken down walls dated from long before the walls actually fell. It was their sin that caused things to be broken down. It was their sin that caused their deportation. 
It was their sin that kept them from being restored to, to God's plans and purposes for them in the world. It was the sin that stopped them from actually being the very hope of the world. They looked around them and they saw enemies on every side. You're going to read about people like Sambala and Tobiah. You're going to read about nations that wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. But truth was, that wasn't their greatest enemy. Their greatest enemy was right in here. It's the fact that they weren't devoted to their God. As we've read in chapter 1, after hearing of the trouble in Jerusalem, Nehemiah, he doesn't pray for God to destroy the other nations of the world. He doesn't pray, God, wipe out all the really bad people. I'm a bit rubbish, God, but wipe out the really bad ones, because they're the problem. He doesn't get on his high horse and start saying, God, would you do away with this political movement or that one or bring in this or bring in that? Would you, would you fix this or fix that or do this or do that? No, Nehemiah, he doesn't get on any kind of high horse. He sits down. Sitting down is kind of just an expression of kind of desperation, isn't it? Can you almost hear him? You ever had a moment like that when you've sat down and, and it, as you've sat down and maybe just a bit heavily because things have hit you so hard and all the air just seems to escape from your lungs. You had a moment like that? <sighs> and you know you've got nothing. He doesn't pray, God, do this, do that, fix them, fix those. He says, God, it's me. It's me. I need help. We need help. Read that prayer for yourself. The only you in the prayer is God that he's addressing. Everywhere else it's I, it's we, it's us. And he's praying, God, forgive us. Forgive us. Prayer matters. Prayer matters. Prayer matters because it roots ourselves in that you, in the the, the God who is sovereign. Verse 5 makes this really plain to us. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Look, there's there's no denying who he's talking to here. There is one true God. There is one who is sovereign. And if your life isn't oriented around that God, then your life has no orientation at all. If you're not in orbit around God, please understand there's nothing that's strong enough for the orbit of your life. You will spin and spiral off. There is one God. Prayer matters because it gets our eyes off ourselves or the others that we're blaming or the circumstances. And it starts us to understand that we need Jesus. And I don't know, but maybe you've forgotten that through this year. I don't know, but maybe when the the troubles of today seem to swarm all around you, you've lost sight of that. But you need to pray. And if you don't know what else to pray, say, Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And it's not in the Bible, but it's there really in its spirit. You finish the prayer by saying, Help. God's in control. This is why prayer matters. And prayer matters as well because although it's rooted in an unchanging God, that's really good news. Prayer matters because we recognize that the change has to begin with us. You know, all too often, as we've said already, we're looking around us for someone else to blame. We assume that our part of the tale is simply to keep our head down, to be Christian enough without being too Christian. 
and to point out all the problems around us. We, we just love to do it. You know, it's right that there should be analysis and, and there should be investigation. And there's going to be, apparently, in this country around COVID. But what will happen through the human heart is analysis and investigation and learning will turn into blame. Because it always does. Because that's what humans are like. And you're one and I'm one. And we just love to blame. I've mentioned it on many occasions, but I'll mention it again. There was a, a Russian dissident during the time of the Stalinist purges called Solzhenitsyn. He's a famous author. If you want to be really depressed, you can read some of his books. <sighs> Powerful stuff, though. And because he called out the problems in kind of a prophetic way, he was sent to the gulags, the prison camps in Siberia. And there he had a moment that really it was brought on by God of understanding. And he said, look this, the, the dividing line between good and evil, I discovered, it does not lie between different nation states. Can't say one's good and one's bad. He said the dividing line doesn't lie between political parties or groups. You can't say one's good and one's bad. He said the dividing line between good and evil is not actually even between different people saying one is good and one's bad. He said the dividing line between good and evil runs down every human heart. Nehemiah knew this. And he got on his knees and he said, I've sinned. My family have sinned. We have sinned. This nation has sinned. We are not before you as we ought to be. You told us the truth, but we believed a lie. This morning, my primary call is a call to confession and repentance. This is where it begins for Nehemiah. And I know I love a good strategy. Does anyone love a good strategy? Does anybody love to plan? Is anybody planning to watch England through the Euros and commentate from the sidelines and say, what are you doing, Gareth Southgate? Because we'll all have a better strategy, won't we? We'll all know better. We love to scheme and plan. Look, we want to do this with our lives sometimes. We want to do this with our world. But the Bible tells us your plans are nothing unless they're rooted in prayer. It says your schemes and your strategies are nothing unless you deal with your sin. There was this wonderful story that came out in the news recently. And I think we've got a picture of a, a block of cheese, would you believe? But apparently, this criminal, he came from, from Liverpool, not from the Wirral, because there are no criminals on the Wirral, as we know. They're all in Liverpool. Is anyone here from Liverpool? Uh, yeah, lots of hands go up, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Uh, but did you hear about this story? And this guy, he had a picture of him holding, and it's M&S cheese. He must have been doing well as a criminal, um, but he was holding up his M&S cheese. And, and apparently, on social media, he posted this picture and the, the, the resolution of the picture was so good that they were able to identify him from his fingertips. Can you believe this? And track him down because he was wanted for all sorts of nasty stuff. Wow. <laughs> I heard this story. I said to Erin, that's amazing. I said, they did something right, didn't they, the police? Good on them. I thought it was hilarious because he was boasting about a block of Stilton. It's just comedically wonderful. You've got no sense of humor, you miserable bunch. <laughs> what did they used to say? Be sure your sins will find you out. Sounds old-fashioned, doesn't it? It's really true. I know it. It's happened for me. You know it. It's happened for you. 
Why do we try and convince ourselves otherwise? The call of God at the beginning of these chapters that are going to help us to build back better is to repent. It is to confess. God's not trying to catch you out. He's inviting you to receive his mercy. God's not scanning your social media feed to see if he can have a look at your fingerprint, double-check his database and say, oh, goodness, what have they done? Let me lock them up. God comes to you closely through the words of Scripture and the presence of his Spirit, and he says, I still love you. God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. God says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to so excuse me, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Second Corinthians 7 and verse 10 tells us godly grief, not, not shame, not a big pointing finger, not cheese on Facebook. Seriously, godly grief produces a repentance that's a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of life that leads to salvation. God wants to save you, whether for the first time or to save you afresh from that area of your life that you've never surrendered to him or to save you eternally when he comes again to receive you to himself. He is about salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Only godly grief will move you to prayer. Why was Nehemiah, who had everything fine, moved to prayer? Because he he received godly grief. It was a gift. Do you want to grieve? It's a gift of God that turns us from our sin, that turns us from patterns of living that aren't going to bring the kingdom of God into our world and turns us to his way of living in our life. It's a gift. It's the kind of gift that hurts you to receive, but then does such good in you. Will you receive? Here's the difference that the Christian church brings to the world. Economics and science and charity and politics and society, they can bring some good things, but they're all still passing away. They can't possibly hope to live forever. When the Bible says worldly grief produces death, it doesn't always mean that things are are, are just dead right now. It means that things are dead ultimately. Whatever kind of flourishing and and kind of springing forth of life that comes from, from good things done by good people, as much as we can say that, it still can't ultimately change things for ultimate. But godly grief can. What do you want in life? Where are you heading? What's the scorecard of your life? Has COVID changed it at all? I hear a lot of good talk, but I don't see so much change. And I don't mean you, I mean me. I hear myself speak, but am I really a less angry person? Am I really kinder? Do I really get on my knees more? Am I really serving others more? Am I more Christ-like? God grant me grief. What's the scorecard of your life? Back to normal is a false promise. What we really do want is back to better. 
There's a longing in your heart for home. <laughs> and you, you didn't know it, but that's it. There's a longing in your heart to be with God in the place God has made. And you can see bits of it around here because he made this too, although it's broken. I don't mean the church, I mean the world. But you long for the better. You long for home. Here's how we start getting there. We pray. We repent. We confess. We long. We grieve. We're going to be led in a song as we close. And as we're led in that fashion, I hope you've received one of these delightful little inventions as you arrive today. And if you've not, maybe some of our stewards would help us with that. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are welcome to partake in this. It's underneath the top cover, if you're unfamiliar with it, is something that pretends to be bread. I'm sorry for the way that it will stick to the top of your mouth. That's not important. <laughs> At the bottom part is the cup. You don't need to open it yet. Although if it takes you half an hour, you might want to start. What we are going to do is we're going to do some work together. And it's the work of godly grief. And so I'm asking you, don't rush. This is not a one, two, three, done, gone, on, move. This is, do I mean it? Jesus meant it. His body was literally broken for the healing of the nations. His blood was poured out for the cleansing of our sin. Now, he did a work that none of us could, none of us can. So you're not being asked to do the same thing that Jesus did in the same way. But in receiving what Jesus has done, treasuring it, honoring it, the call is for you to do what God has called you to do. Step one, confess your sins. Repent. Turn. Come again to his mercy. Be set new. Set free. God is calling us home. It's going to be a long old journey. It's an awful lot of building to do to get there. Do you know Nehemiah? A little bit of a spoiler. He gets to go to Jerusalem. He's instrumental. He's the catalyst for the building of the walls. He gets to do that, and God brings about glorious things through that man. God, thank you for Nehemiah. But then he has to go back to Persia. Did you know that? That stinks, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like, God, can't we just all go to heaven now? <laughs> Does anybody ever feel like that? It's just me. I'll have a lot of space. <laughs> a few others of you, okay. I can have a few of you that come. I just long for that. I just want to go. I want to be done. But God's not done. Bible says God's not slow as some count slowness. Rather, he is patient, wishing that all should come to repentance. He doesn't just want us here. He doesn't just want those of us on the live stream. He doesn't just want those who know now. He wants everybody, everybody 
this is why he's calling you to build, but this is why we start the work here right now. God wants us all. So I'm going to be quiet. And just as the music plays and before the singing comes, why don't you close your eyes? And if you want to, you can do some work with God right now because he's here. He's here. If you know there's a work of confession to be done, confess your sins to God. He is very, very good. And he will be good to you. And say, God, I don't just want to confess so that I can carry on in that way. I want to repent. I want to turn around. I want to journey towards your home, the building work that you're calling me to do. Talk with God for yourself. Sovereign God, we acknowledge that all things are in your hands. Our hope is in you. You alone build what lasts and has lasting worth. God, today we repent from building our own kingdoms. We repent from our sin, both personal and as God's people, your church. Inasmuch as you have given us a place and a purpose in this world, we ask that you would return us to that afresh through the cleansing work of godly sorrow. Today we would, as Nehemiah, promise to play our part. Begin this work in us, we pray church if you're ready you're welcome to take the bread take this wafer and take and eat of the brokenness of Christ Jesus that brings our healing and wholeness you can take the cup and invite the cleansing work of Jesus in your life we're led in this closing song if you're here this morning and you're saying actually this sounds good but I don't know whether I've ever done that before I don't know whether I've ever given any part of my life to God let alone all of it but I would like to if that's you this morning as this closing song is led for us and the church is responding I'm going to be right down here at the front and I would love to pray with you today if that's you. And you're saying, I don't know whether I have ever put my life in God's hands, but I want to. And I don't want to walk out of here with my life in my hands anymore. I want to put it in the hands of God. And come down. And
and join with me and I'll pray with you and God will meet with you and you'll go away changed. So church, would you stand with me? We're going to be led in this song. I want to remind you that this evening, if you have Facebook or YouTube, we have another opportunity at 8 p.m. to come and share together as we close the day, as we do every day at 8 p.m. via Facebook and YouTube. And I'd love to, I was going to say see you there. I won't see you, but to have you there. God bless you and encourage you in him. I'm going to be here. Thank you, Adam. Once again, it's been such a delight to be able to share together as a church this morning. And uh, we know uh, that taking what God has been doing in our lives, we can go and have wonderful weeks with him. Just to um, invite you um, to journey together with one another as we go through the week. We as a church, we don't just gather, but we get going into what God has for us together. And we have these things called transform communities. We would love to help you to connect with other like-minded people who are exploring God's goodness and grace and seeing how they can be a part of his transforming work in the world. So again, hit us up, get in touch. We'd love to help you to connect. Anything that you need, any prayer requests, do let us know. And we'll love to see you again this time next week. God bless you and bye for now.